Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Welcome back to both my listeners and John Teeter. John is a friend of mine. We did a podcast way too long ago. It's been too long since I've had John on, but the nice thing about not having John on for so long is we're going to have a lot to catch up on on this show, and it's been really cool to kind of sit back and watch John take off with his own podcast, and we'll uh, uh, we'll promote that here in a few minutes. Um, but John, first of all, great to have you back. Um, I didn't warn you, my voice is a little... Uh, little raspy um i think everybody who's been around me in the last uh like 48 hours probably thinks i'm sick but actually what has happened is um we have a neighbor to uh the farm that i work on where we raise uh um, prairie grasses and flowers and sedges for uh crp and hunting properties and and backyard pollinator patches and everything else well one of our neighbors raises cattle but uh, his fences are in terrible shape. And uh, so his cows, you know, they see all that nice big blue stem. They see all, all the uh, uh, Indian grass, and they wander out into our production fields. And so I spent three times on Friday, I had to chase these cows off, and I lost my voice shouting at cows. Um, <laughs> we have this little golf cart that we travel around on in between production fields. And I, I looked like... Uh, um, the Red River John Wayne driving cows on a golf cart. Man, I was doing figure eights, chasing them, and, and everything else. And so my voice is is pretty much gone today. But uh, it's great to have you back, and uh, you know I'm excited to get caught up with you. Yeah, no, it's great to be back, and uh, I appreciate you talking a little bit about my podcast and kind of where I'm at. And we can talk a little bit more about some of the business things I'm working on, and you know where my trajectory is at this point, and you know, what's the plan of action going forward? Because I got a lot of ideas on things, and you know, I'm pretty open to sharing almost almost anything, even business strategy with people on this. And uh, you know, I'm a habitat guy at heart. That's my business. That's what I do. I help people in the Northeast. So, um, you know, it's nice to be able to share my experiences, my expertise, and some things I know a lot about, and some things I'm always you know I'm learning. So that's that's kind of the beauty of of uh, where I'm at today. Oh yeah, would you agree with this, John? That since doing your podcast um it's probably been at least this is true for me and i want to know if it's true for you too it's been the most efficient uh method of learning i've ever experienced in my life just talking to guys like you all the time would you agree with that yeah yeah i would say definitely yes and it's you know you, everyone has a different maybe ideology some of it's based on you know i guess science some have practical application with mm-hmm. things and it's kind of melding the two of those giving you kind of this, I guess, better perspective on maybe almost a more worldly perspective on how to approach things. And uh, I've, I've really appreciated connecting, you know, connecting with people that are, I, I would say uh, the best of the best, mm. you know, that my group, I think of my group is the best of the best in the country that's doing this. And we'll talk probably more about the podcast and what it's yeah, about, yeah, but yeah. you know, that's, that's kind of, it allowed me to connect with people. I've got people calling me 
now uh, asking or trying to get me to think about next generational things where maybe a year ago, no, no one was calling me saying, you know, John, you, you got to get look at this or you got to get into this kind of area. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. We'll definitely dive into that and we'll, we'll tell everybody what your podcast is and how to find it and also your business as well and talk about if you have any room for uh, more clients. Um, I know you're a busy man, but we'll, we'll get into all that here in a minute. Before we do that though, Let's get everybody uh, dialed in on this one. Get them to turn up the volume a little bit because they want to hear a good story. Um, in uh, Maybe I'll start it this way. Uh, uh, I have a very good friend, and his brother works for a nuclear power plant. And uh, his job is like the, the safety uh, manager or something like that for like the entire plant. And uh, so he not only puts protocols into place for everybody to stay as safe as possible, but he um, has to do all this research on, on, you know, odds of different things happening. And when he does that, he comes across all these unrelated uh, safety concern things. And uh, he was talking with my friend, uh, Luke, uh, his brother. And he's like, you know, after, doing this job and having to pour over all these statistics on, you know, the likelihood of something terrible happening to you when doing different activities. He's like, I will never cut down another tree. And this is a guy who grew up on a farm. That's got quite a bit of forest on it. And he's like the odds of, of you getting seriously hurt or killed compared to almost any other activity are sky high. When you look at, uh, how many people are injured when felling trees. So uh, it made me think, you know, you do some pretty dangerous work. You you do a lot of burning, you do a lot of tree cutting, working with heavy equipment. You got to have a story about your sketchiest day of work, like like a close call type of thing. You, you got anything for us? I do. And I'm going to be pretty vulnerable here because this is a, you know, a matter of liability and risk. So sure, sure. I, you know, if pe- people don't, don't know me personally, so my, my business is consulting. I have uh, another partner who works me, does implementation work. And, you know, I, I'm located in New York state, but I do travel throughout the country, but mo- sure. mostly in the Northeast. And I get to consult. And a part of the consulting is a lot of times I'll stay with a client. I'll live with the client for a period of time. And uh, I'll also, you know, go back to these clients. I have reoccurring clients every year. You know, they want continuing maintenance work. So we have a property that's a turnkey property. What that means is, I did all the consulting. Uh, it's actually two properties. We do all the implementation work. The client basically just shows up and kills deer. And we're working on a portion of the property, and it's it's a larger timber portion. And I do cut timber, and I support my partner. He uh, he enjoys when we have our days together because yeah. you know uh, it's just it's talk and chat and work and grind and you know two heads are better than one kind of kind of days. Yeah. Yep. And so we created a, a pretty long, we, we built what we call walls of cover. Uh, if anybody listens to, to my podcast, there's a few guys who, who do some similar things. Uh, Jim Orb is, is one of the participants in our podcast and Jake mm-hmm. Ellinger, myself, we have similar strategy, how we cut. Anyhow, so I was building this long wall that was basically running, oh, I don't know, like 400 yards, mm-hmm. really long. Yeah. And I'm like, Josh, watch this. I'm going to cut a 400 yard wall in one shot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and anybody knows that's, that's almost 
you know, I'm, that's not possible. Yeah. Uh, so, so I cut the wall and, uh, you know, it, it's like a domino effect. And so a lot of times you'll have some snaggling trees in there and, and you've got to take those down. And so, those are usually so, the most dangerous. So just to make sure that everyone's on the same page, I, I think I get what you're saying, but you're, you basically have all these trees like pre-cut, but not, not all the way felled yet. And then you do the, you do the end domino and it just goes <laughs> like that. Is that what you're doing? Yeah. For 400 yeah. feet. Yeah. For like 400, <laughs> like, yeah, it's pretty far. Like this is ridiculous. So like, if you saw this, you'd be like, that's impossible. But you know, I'm trying <laughs> to make magic football field. Happen. That's like well beyond. That's like a football field at a third. Yeah. You know, you should, I, it was funny. So I was, uh, I was just cutting out a client recently and his, so his, his I'll get back to my story, but his wife, she's home. And uh, she's listening to me and she's recording. She can, she can hear the chainsaws running and she hears, and you can see kind of like behind, I basically did it. Cause I was thinking about the aesthetic piece of this. I did all this yeah. work behind the scenes. So you can't, you can't really see my work from their house or anything like that, right. but just to hear the sound and the catastrophe that ensues, it's just, <laughs> anyhow, it sounds more destructive than it, than it is. Sure. But to this point, you know, I, I cut this, this line of trees. Right. And so, you got a lot of standing timber. Some things fall, some things don't. You've got to go in there and, and uh, kind of process all that, right? And then that, that gets you in a bit of a disaster. So my recommendation is don't do what I just said. <laughs> don't try to don't try to attempt a world record. Yeah. Back up, do it in small increments. So I I'm sitting there with my partner, and we're like, okay, well, we got to cut another line and knock down some of these remaining trees. So you know, you're in you're in Death Valley, and one of the things to think about is after you're cutting trees, let things sit, shift, you know, because you'll have deadfall. My area, there's a ton of dead white ash. Sure. The, yeah. You know, the ash will be falling. It's just, it's, it's, it's catastrophic, right? Yeah. So my partner gets up on a bunch of logs and I'm about, eh, I'm not in line with him. I'm behind him, but I'm off to his left, maybe 30 feet, 40 feet. So I'm not right there. I'm, I'm off sure. a little bit. And he's cutting and I'm just, I'm, I'm eye in the sky. I'm just watching, 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 because, you know, you, you kind of work off each, each other. You give each other pointers, right? You look yeah. for danger, your team. So he cuts his tree and it starts going down and it, he's hinge cutting this tree. Uh -huh. And there's no issue with the tree that's being hinge cut, but there's a tree 20 yards to my left. It's 20 yards away. And again, I'm some distance away from him too. So this treetop hits another treetop, bounces off the pile, hits the tree Ooh. to my left, okay, 20 yards away, and it swings around, breaks off the hinge. It was hinge cut, breaks off the hinge, and baseball bats me in the side and pins me to the ground. Ooh. Oh. So this is man. the scary part. So if I'm 12 inches closer to the pile, or if I'm 12 inches, uh, we call this. Uh, we end up labeling this this line of trees the death wall. <laughs> the death so if wall. I'm 12 inches closer to the death wall, this tree is this uh, the stump will crush me. And a lot of yeah. times, it, when a stump hits, it teeters and it just it, it'll smash you, right? And and so it it was I got so lucky. So the the butt of this tree, which was connected to that hinge, that portion is not a full stump. It's just a portion hinged, and that landed on me and. There's the other piece of it is, you know, you, you could have like these sharp daggers oh, that would yeah. actually pierce your lungs. And so Josh jumps over, cuts me out. So I'm sitting there trying to regain my confidence because I just got 
beaten like you know yeah. by a baseball bat you know and that tree was like you know 14 15 dbh yeah it's not a small tree oh. and so i'm sitting there just trying to catch my breath and i'm like geez we got about six more hours worth of work here oh. i gotta finish my day and i gotta get over this situation so maybe like a half hour later i kind of go in shock a little bit and like holy crap i almost died you know yeah. My day will go on, but it was it was one of those days that I limped along a little a little slower oh than I normally do. Goodness, man, you're lucky to be alive. Did uh did it bruise your ribs or crack any ribs or anything? Yeah, I cracked my I, no cracking the ribs. Got lucky. My arm was really hurt, and I had jobs coming up where I, I had to physically uh, work. So, you know, my consulting jobs are, are really easy. You know, it's you're walking, you're talking, you're you're giving them kind of the the full rundown. But boy, cutting timber is just a different world, and you know, I'll, I'll listen to these consultants say, oh, I only recommend hinge cutting 10% of the time. Well, it's species specific, location specific. And mm-hmm. my areas take so long to grow structure and, and build these kind of dense thickets. Hinge cutting is is uh, undoubtedly the, the practice that's it's essential. And yeah. if you don't work in these areas, you, you, you know, you don't have the understanding behind that. Yep. Um, and, and Ken, just to, just to bring up one point here is, you know, I'm not saying that people – should or shouldn't hinge cut it's a it's a level of expertise that it takes a long time to get there and i've screwed up more times than not so i know and even in this instance i was a little too close to josh um i should have been back a little bit further i should have been talking him through his cut and i should have been the eye in the sky he was at that point more aware than i was so Mm. you know it's it's just that observational piece of the pie that that's important yeah yeah you know uh Sometimes when we have those close calls, you know, you just, like you said, you know, 30 minutes later, you almost like go into shock a little bit like, yeah, yeah, almost. And you feel, you feel almost like ashamed, you know, like, how did I let my guard down? How did I allow myself to be in this? I almost totally let my, you know, like my kids, they almost didn't have a dad. You know, my wife is almost, you know, widowed and you like think of that, but then it's almost good medicine too, because a lot of times when you hear of guys dying on the job, not always, sometimes just a freak thing, but sometimes it's, and maybe I shouldn't even say a lot of times, but definitely sometimes it was a preventable tragedy, but you get so used to the routine of things that you kind of let your guard down. And uh, when you have those scary moments, it almost like snaps you back to reality. Like, yep, back to day one, safety first, you know, we got to, we got to treat all the this stuff seriously and, and as dangerous as it can be, you know. And that goes for not just tree cutting, but, you know, prescribed burning. And and uh, usually for me, the biggest thing is just operating equipment, you know, every day on the farm and, and you know, hooking up PTOs and and cleaning out equipment and, and uh, climbing in and out and up and down things. You know, you could, you know, one wrong move sometimes it could, it could be it. And so you gotta, you gotta keep that, that mindset. And so sometimes those close calls, they kind of, they kind of create that big <laughs> alarm again in our brain when we're doing those things. So, man, I'm glad you're okay. You know? <laughs> yeah, me too. And I, I share that with everybody to recognize that, you know, this isn't for the faint of heart. You know, a lot of my clients are in their fifties, you yeah. know, asking them to do this type of work is kind of beyond their expertise. I'm, I'm in, I'm in my early forties, so I'm, I'm relatively young. I'm in okay shape, you know, but it's, 
you know, we we caught we uh we actually worked with Jim Ward and uh, we watched him cut. He's a bit of a madman, and uh, <laughs> it's interesting seeing people's you know take on things and how they approach. I'm very methodical because if you don't cut a certain way, there's a lot of maintenance that comes along with it. Sure. And by the way, like I screw up all the time. You know, I'll drop a tree slightly wrong, and it creates a whole bunch of cleanup work for me. Mm. And you know, you have to be as conscientious as you can when you're trying to create you know, these ultimate designs and layouts. And again, every area is different. You know, the tactics I would do a little bit, I guess, Southern areas in, you know, in relation to me, Southern would be Pennsylvania, but you know, Westerly is a little bit differently. Your deer populations are different. You know, your strategy is different all over the place. And, you know, so, um, you know, there's, there's tactics that come with each individual property. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. And I like too how you, you know, clarified that with the the hinge cutting and how, you know, you understand that there's people that have varying opinions, but until you really step foot on a property or in your case, even I'd say a region, you know, forced structure is so much different. I've driven through upstate New York quite a few times. My, uh, in-laws are from, uh, New England. They live in New Hampshire and, uh, it's it is such a different world there and the other thing that amazes me about new york that i think a lot of people don't realize you guys have so many deer i mean it'd be really they got to be really hard to hunt because you have so much habitat but there are you know driving down the road you just you see you know if you're at that right time of the day they're everywhere and it's a it's it's interesting because parts of the state are a little different you know the yeah what so the way you look at the states at least like holistically is south of me like pennsylvania virginia's mm-hmm. ohio's like you know those edges there you know their populations are pretty good sometimes it's sparse sometimes it's in, you know it's it's pretty pretty well managed populations yeah. whereas you come up to new york and there's these areas in the western part of the state are just some are intensely managed by the locals and some are not and the numbers are fantastic comparable the portions of the Midwest, and mm-hmm. I would say not like the Iowas, but it, good, good, good volume of deer. Yeah. You know, thirty-five to fifty-five deer per square mile, and then you start traveling east, and you're talking, you know, Vermont. Yeah, uh, you're talking New Hampshire, those areas, Connecticut. You're starting to flow in those areas, and the the, the populations change, yeah. and that changes your strategy too. Um, how specific you need to be, how smart you need to be to build these properties. So. You can't take a consultant that has familiarity with the Iowa deer population and those, I guess, general habitat characteristics and have them come over. Like a great example is this is a this is a great example. I'm going to I'm not going to call him out. I'm just going to say just as a matter of fact. So Don Higgins is in Illinois. Okay, mm-hmm. he's in yep. Gay, Illinois. I've looked at his property multitude of times. I didn't go to his you know, his, any of his, his events, super smart guy, intelligent, oh, yeah. has his act together, uh, pay a premium to get him on your property. And he does an excellent job supporting his understanding based on his experience in his eco region. And it's yeah. very flat, isolated, um, isolated Island, uh, parcels are completely different yeah. than, you know, mixed ag or completely forested land. So yep. you've got to take the, consultants expertise and i bring up don because i think he's fantastic um and then there's other people i would say like tony the pratt he's another example people probably are familiar with him you know he, he's a bit egotistical he focuses on his not in a bad way right his experience has kind of proven the fact that he has good uh techniques 
and approach and he's very specific, but he's also an island property. Hmm. So he's not, they're not aware of big forested lands and those type of things. Um, And, and, you know, you get people in Ohio that burn a lot, right? That's a lot different from New York that don't have an opportunity to burn. So they have a very different way that they, they uh, approach property management. So what you've got to recognize is each area and each individual has different expertise and it's, it's hard sometimes to fly somebody out to provide that. Um, yep. It's a little easier when you've got the person that has the hardest hunting, the lowest deer population, and has been successful because his mechanics and tactics are going to be a little bit more specific. He knows what species to cut and not because he's had to create this. Uh, he's at the plant level. He might yeah. be even at the insect level, okay, mm-hmm. whereas these other guys are at like, well, I just plant switchgrass. <laughs> okay, well, switchgrass to me is just such a – a piece of the puzzle and it's important right. it's it's not the uh it's not the, it, it's, it's not, not the, the fix changer. all yeah yep no but it's great i mean it's a it's a great plant you know there's there's i'll get if you want to go through plants i'll give you 15 plants to plant on your property right and yep. so you can listen to me and and what i would say is what's ever easiest like so people have forested land and it's crazy because they're like what trees do i plant i'm like uh, you have forested ground. We, we actually don't want any more trees. We want yeah. less trees. Yeah. And they're like, well, what? Cr-? And then they just say, well, what apple trees should I plant? I'm like, none, zero. Yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> so it's like, it's trying to get, and then you go like you're in, in Iowa. There's a lot of, it's ag country, big yep. ag country, right? Yep. And the, yep. the timber's sparse in some areas. It's larger in other areas. Mm-hmm. That that mixed ag scenario, depending on the volume of forested versus non-forested, it plays into the whole kind of dynamics of how do you create, you know, the ultimate. And and I would recommend for people who are looking at your properties, look at the breakup. Just look at what constitutes your habitat structure. You know, what is what is the vegetation type? And look at those percentages and say, okay, well, what's my whole environment? And then what do I lack? And your methodology to say, okay, well, I don't have any shrubland. Well, then try to create some shrubland on your property. And it's, it may be, it may require some planning. Um, but, you know, think through that topic a little bit further. And, and that'll give you some of the answers that, that I think a lot of people don't have because they don't know where to start half the time. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. And we're definitely going to deep dive in this a little bit more here in, in a few minutes. But we need to get caught up a little bit from, uh, you know, last year since we last talked. Let's start with the, uh, Let's start with uh, how, you know, everyone who's listening in right now, you, me, how we're all related. How was your 2022 whitetail season? Oh, geez. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tough. Um, I, Pat, so my area, low deer population. This was the first year. So I I, I own 46 acres. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I'm just great, like everybody else. I'm that's great. We're, we're going to, we're going to talk about small property management. That is so, that, that is so such a critically important topic that I think relates to a lot of people. So I'm glad to hear that you're a 46 acre hunter. Yeah. So I'm 46 acres and I'm in central New York. I'm in Tully, New York. You can go Google my name. You can look at my property. Uh, please do that. I'll give you some ideas potentially uh, beyond that. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm at the point in my career, if I, I don't care if I kill again, I'm, I'm happy where I'm sure. at. I've achieved what I want to achieve. So I'm willing to share this year was one of my better years. And I saw, I think, and I hunt very, I hunt like maybe four to five times a year. That's mm-hmm. it. Uh, I wow. work in the off season. I'll put 30 days in the off season. I'll hunt four or five times. And mm-hmm. in that short period of time, I hunted, I think I actually hunted eight times this year. I saw 19 bucks. 
And, you know, again, my deer population is nothing. I'm at 20, Mm. roughly 22 to 25 deer per square mile. That's on the high end. Uh, Most hunting season, we're back down to 16, 17, you know. So small, low numbers, poor age class. And uh, I passed three, three and a half year olds this year. That's awesome. That is awesome for me. And um, my goal, the reason I did that was uh, I was after one particular buck. Um, One of my best friends killed him. He scored 153. It was a buck we had gone after together. This is in my area. That's world-class. Sure. Anything bigger than the 120 class is like an anomaly. Anyhow, so this buck scored 153. It was a buck that I had, I'd killed a, a big buck the year before. Mm-hmm. And this was my, my target deer. I, uh, I went right after him twice. The first time I bumped him. The second time I walked right up on him. <laughs> I, was, I was about to get in my tree. I, I had my, my, uh, my hang on. I do a hanging hunt. Sure. And I'm about to hang on. I walk right up and there he is with a doe. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you gotta be kidding me. Oh. He's, he's right in the spot. I'm going to hunt. Um, but one of my partners, the guys that I hunt with five guys and, you know, there are various, you know, sophistication and I, you know, I don't drink. I, you know, I'm like in this whole different world of deer hunting yep. and they think I'm crazy. You yep. know, they're back at the cabin kind of drinking and party. And I'm like, don't touch me. Can it, can we hand you a beer? You know, we'll, <laughs> we'll leave it in the snow and you can get it. It's like, no, I, I don't. And so it's just these different worlds. So one of the yep. guys killed this giant buck. I am so ecstatic. And the first thing he said to me goes, this is your deer. Well, you did all the research on this deer. Cause I told him he was going to, we were going to kill this buck the next morning. I said, I got on Intel. We're going to go over and kill him in the morning. He called me and said, I shot him tonight. And, uh, the story, there's a story I don't want to get into, but it was sure. a great hunt for him. And I'm very happy for him. And, and it was all about the, the relationship. He made yeah. the hunt about me and not had nothing to do with me. Um, but so that that was my that was my season. It was a great season. Uh, I killed a couple does, and I was very content. There is one particular deer I'm going after this year. I should kill him. If I don't kill him, I'll be a little surprised. But it's also my son's first year deer hunting this year. So my priority is my son, and uh, I've had my go about it. I'm I'm pretty happy where I'm at. So we'll see. You know, my son he kills a nice deer. I'm going to be ecstatic. We're, we'll kill the first. He said I'm not killing any fawns. The first deer I kill. I go after I'm, 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 you know, I see I'm going to kill him. Great. That's, that's how we start. Yep. Yep. That's Spike, right. Four point. Uh, hopefully it's a big doe, you know, something like that. So yeah, love that. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So selfless uh, to view it that way, you know, find a way to use the keyword there. Uh, a friend of mine, Doug Duran uh, talks about sharing the land. He has a sharing the land program and, and uh that you're doing it you know you're you're inviting other people to partake and getting them involved in the process which is the other part of sharing the land you know is is having people participate not just as a hunter but is you know seeing the process for for what goes into taking care of the land and uh, hopefully you'll get to see and do more of that with with uh your crew that comes up there and hunts with you and now your uh, son so that's that's really fantastic you know i recently had jake hofer on the podcast uh from exodus uh trail cams and he's you know he's big into land management he has his own podcast land podcast and um i asked him a question i said you know a lot of you guys you you that are big time land management you know people it seems like a like a lot of you hit a point where the managing of the land is a bigger deal to you than 
than uh, is the actual hunting side. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm already there, man. <laughs> and it sounds like you are too. You know, it's like that, that, becomes, that becomes what really, I don't know, you ever hear the phrase like, oh, you know, this is what fills my cup. You know, saying that, you know, this is what like, you know, makes me feel like I'm doing what I'm meant to do or, or whatever. Do you, do you feel like that's true for you too, John? I, I don't know. It's part of the season. So let's think about this. I'm on new property every week or thereabouts, right? Yeah. And so I get to meet all these people. So there's a selfless piece of it where, you know, I've learned to be as giving and considered to people as I can, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm beyond empathetic. Then there's my own property and my own objectives and goals. Yeah. Then there's this other piece of it where, you know, you want to have success. And what does success mean to you? Some some of it's just habitat. For me, it's the whole picture. I don't think yeah. of habitat as just being my fundamental, you know, forte. Uh, I'm a killer. I've always yeah. been a killer. Uh, the, the thing that's different about me from a lot of these guys is I don't leave the state. I want to hunt the hardest areas I can. I want low deer populations, difficult scenarios, because it fine tunes my skills. So these guys that go to Kansas, they got all these monster bucks on the wall in Iowa and all these other areas that are quality areas to hunt. You know, kudos to them. I mean, yeah. I think it's so awesome, and I think it's a great opportunity. I love seeing that. But things are not comparable, and not right. in a bad yep. way. They're just different, and the difference is what makes the spice of life. So, you know, I – I hear Jake, I hear his opinion on things. And I think habitat piece of it is good. There's a piece of this where it, you can be so scientific, you know, I'm oh, looking sure. at, yeah. I'm looking at uh, aspects of my property in feet, n- not inches feet, but not yards. Okay. So if we're looking at the property in those type of increments, you're going to be very specific. So I'm looking at a plant, you know, or plants in a 10 by 10 section, 10 foot by 10 foot section. Yeah. So that makes me a, a, habitat Nazi. But what that does is create insanity because only on 46 acres, it's hard to manage that property collectively. So Mm -hmm. you've got to recognize and pick and choose how much time you're willing to spend and what's going to be the return on investment. And most of the time, the concepts and philosophies are great. Like the way I cut timber, like everyone's like, oh, you got to cut stem density. All that. My deer in the closed canopy. Okay. So my whole philosophy is based upon my experience and how to design these ultimate properties in these very highly pressured areas. We're the second most highly pressured area in the country for, mm. for deer hunters, period. And so, you know, Pennsylvania, us, I mean, it's it's kind of that battle back and forth. And the reality of it is I've grown up hunting in, in a competitive environment. And that yeah. competition is has really kind of sparked this difference. And I don't have it easy and I don't want it easy. And so that specificity has kind of been my forte. And that's why, like, I, I hear these, like, who are the underground best hunters? I'm like, you, I can tell you guys that you'd never hear of. I yeah. had a guy kill a booner. One of my clients killed a booner crocodile deer in New York State, okay? Wow. This is how smart that's this incredible. guy is. Okay, he called me and said, hey, I killed the target deer. I said, great. Um, what do you score, right? Um, yeah, he's in the 180s, right? So mm-hmm. that's awesome. I'll never see a picture of that deer. He never sent me anything. He said, don't tell anybody. Now, nobody knows this client. It's I, I can express this, but the, the thing is, the only way I'll see that deer, he didn't bring in a taxidermist. The only way I'll see that deer is if I go back to that property and work. This guy's a killer. Yeah. And um, there's guys like that are so, you know, they bring up people that I hear and it's just like, I would love to have some of these folks come to our areas and hunt. And your yeah. wall is going to look different. Your experience is going to be different. But those are the, that's the spice of life. 
and yep. I just enjoy the differences in it. It doesn't make me any better hunting harder ground. It just it makes me way more in tune. Yeah. You know, these big bucks, and let's put this in big buck perspective. Again, I don't know if you thought about this, but my thing is if these deer are in these environments where they're so highly pressured that they have to be so in tune with their environment, they're the prey. We're the predator. Mm-hmm. How much smarter do I have to be? I'm yeah. looking at humidity levels. I'm looking at moisture content in the ground. I mean, yeah. I'm looking at things that I'm, I'm looking at the hydrology of the ground to make a determination of how saturated that will be if the deer will actually bed in that location. Yeah. Yep. So there's a little difference between people that are looking at that type of stuff. You're looking at temperature changes and in increments in tents, right? <laughs> yeah. We're down to the tents, okay? Yeah. 6.2 degree change at this interval of time, which does a thermal suck in this at this slope and in this capacity. And this is this is the impact you're hunting. Yeah. So there's a difference in, in uh, level of expertise based on the circumstances. And there are guys like me all over the place. They just keep their mouth shut. And yeah. uh, so I don't think any of these um, podcasts or any of like the underground best killers, yeah. um, because I could take you to my area and I'll give you a statistic. Eight years in a row, I killed all my deer within hours. And that's all I did. It, 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 every single, my first hunt in killed the deer. And that doesn't make me special. And that, that, this is there's one deer to kill in, you know, ten square miles of this caliber. Yeah. What it does is it makes me really kind of dive into a process and build a system to killing deer. And that's the difference I think with some people that are very consistent. And 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 that's the difference between I think some of these guys that I hear like Higgins. That guy is a very consistent killer, but he's got a he's got a lot of uh, opportunity. Same thing with Jeff Sturgis. These guys yeah. have way more opportunity. So opportunity breeds success, but systematic killing or systematic processing of deer movement, how do you design your property around that? that that's a game changer. And uh, that's really been my forte. And I'm, I'm going on a monologue here, but I'm telling no, you that's that, great. Yeah, that this has is been good the stuff. coolest part of my career because I can tell people I've done this. You know, I've actually yeah. made a property that is a, a CRD property, an A-plus property. Mm. And uh, you can do it too. And it's, it's selling, not a dream. It's selling reality it can really happen. Yeah. You just set expectations. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great way to say it. Selling reality. Um, yeah. And, and I totally agree. You know, I have so much respect for, especially the whitetail hunters up in the Northeastern part of the state, but even too in the Southeastern part of the state, cause it's pretty similar, you know, circumstances there, a lot of, a lot of timber and, uh, Although I do think the deer density is uh, higher, you know, uh, down in a lot of those states than it is, especially up as you get to eastern New York and into New England there. And, you know, you look at some of what those those guys who are uh, tracking deer are doing, you know, that's just... uh, We've had Brad Willie on here from uh, Big Woods Bucks, um, formerly uh, ran uh, uh, White Mountain Buck Trackers, uh, but just joined up with... uh, how blood's uh, uh crew there with big wood bucks and what he does year after year across multiple different states on public land you know on national forests and the caliber of bucks he drags out of the woods is just that guy is, is unreal but like you said too you know there's 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 those guys that nobody knows who they are and they are they are killing it year after year i have a good friend um who moved to Iowa, grew up in Virginia, moved to Iowa for deer hunting. 
and that that guy whacks some incredible deer every year but he purposely got rid of social social media because he felt like he was getting too much attention and uh he's so secretive you know he's he's uh uh and, and to your point too he learned all those skills in a very challenging environment to hunt and then brought them here you know sometimes i feel like you know being a first gen hunter i've had some uh great success that I've been able to enjoy, uh, for not, you know, uh, well, this turkey season kicked off my ninth, uh, hunting season, but I also feel like, man, I'm in the land of plenty here. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder, do I have the training wheels on a little bit? And so, and I got to, I got to experience, you know, I've hunted a couple other States. I think I've hunted three, three different States now. And, um, I've had some success in other states. I have, but I say that without, I don't think I've, I don't, yeah, I haven't filled a tag in another state. I've, I've come close in all three of those states. Um, but uh, the one hunt where it really grew me was when I was, uh, and I've said this so many times in the podcast, I did a uh, black bear hunt, spot and stock black bear hunt in Northwest Montana. And man, you just, that's when you realize how much you take for granted a target rich environment. You know, now you're looking for a needle in a haystack and the skills that you have to come up with and the things like you mentioned, if you study it long enough that you have like those variables that you start to identify and you you shave it down further and further, you just, you just become a better hunter there. So well, you brought up something with the track hunting that I think is impressive. I think those guys are some of the best because if you think about the mechanics of it, these deer, these deer that they're going after, they have to execute them in a way, and I, I make this sound like it's just a like a tactical killing thing, and it's it's not. There's a they have a systematic approach, right? Conditionally, yeah. they wait for certain times of the year. Uh, there's ideal scenarios based upon the seasonality of you know what deer are doing, and that that coincides well with the weather. It gives them kind of a leg up, and it disadvantages the deer. And then think about the execution piece of it. You know how they got to get you know within certain range distance right they've got guns designed for that kind of either close combat or you know quick shooting uh you know quick shooting tactical kind of approach and like that whole scenario is far far different from any style of hunting that most people do yeah there are trackers people do this in some of the midwest states but it's a pretty rarity in the in the northern states you Mm -hmm. get to see you know more of that and and it's crazy because I've worked on properties in the Adirondacks. Adirondacks is this huge yeah. area in New York. <laughs> I drove yeah, through there the once biggest. and it was so vast. It was crazy. Yeah, it's, oh, it's incredible. You know, you'll, you'll be anywhere from like 0.4 to 1.2 deer per square mile. Okay. That and that, that might even be sometimes on the high end, <laughs> you know? Insane. And so when we talk about that style of hunting and being successful, guys like Hal Blood, uh, Joe Donito, some of these guys mm-hmm. are pretty well known in that world. You know, um, you brought up your friend. It's it's kind of one of these that that strategy and style of hunting is so intriguing to me, and that's something where I would, if I had time, you know, I would. I think that would be my next venture because because there it, there's a systematic process to that. Um, oh, deer, yeah. they are quite predictable on how they feed when they lay. You know how they move. You can tell just in their cadence and movement what they're going to do next. And they, they, uh, they, those people are very aware. But you know they fall into luck every now and again as well. So 
it's it's a combination thereof that gets you there. And I, I would say the same thing applies to most people. It's it's a wild animal. You know, there's they, they don't have a leash on them, so you know it's, right. it's. Yeah, I would say the thing about them that is um, so impressive is just their woodsmanship, and you kind of hinted at that when we talked about really studying the behavior of the animal, knowing. You know, and, and you can, I think most bow hunters get to some level of that where like, oh, yeah. okay, how do I read this deer? You know, do I, do I grunt? Do I rattle? Is that going to spook him? Is he actually going to just go ahead and come my way on his own? You know, when he's got that kind of posture, what does that mean? You start to pick up on that, but yeah, you're exactly right. You know, when you're, when you're so dependent on what that animal is, is, uh, uh, you know, what, what their body language is telling you, if you're going to get a shot or not, or if you're going to have to shoot while they're at, on the run, like you said, with the, some of the weapons that they, they have to use. I know Brad talks about, I think it's Remington 35, uh, yeah. what was it 3,500 or something like that? It's the pump action. Rifle, yeah. That a Remington lot of those guys shoot the 760s, 7600s, right? They That's want the what it is. Yeah, 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 pumps, yeah. Some want semis. I bought a gun just specifically to do this kind of hunting and uh, I, I wanted to get into it. I don't, I, I don't have time. I think this year, hopefully the following year, depending on my client load and everything. Cause I, I end in October and I start again in December. I basically have a month off and then I start consulting yeah, again yeah. and uh, I'll cut timber. I mean, if somebody wants me to cut timber, I'll, I'll cut timber in November if I got nothing going on. <laughs> oh, and uh, it, you brought up a, a second ago. I want to kind of reattack. Is you said something? I think this is diminishing. You said, "Well, I'm in a target-rich environment." I'll tell you something about some of the Midwest states, and I've worked in mm-hmm. them. The number of deer and staying undetected is one of the hardest things that you as hunters deal with in those particular areas. No, no yeah. question. That's a good point. Yeah, and and point. so that makes the hunting harder. It's a lot of eyes and a lot of ears. Maybe your deer, you know, they they're not as they're not as concerned with disturbance. However, mm. they're still disturbed, and in that, and you know, gives gives them some meaningful stimuli. And mm-hmm. so, you have to be even more tactful on your ingress egress and some of the other factors that go into that. How you build habitats a little bit different. You have to scale it for the number of deer. You have to think big. And so that requires more intense management, which may, you need to be efficient when you do stuff like that. Yeah. You're better yeah. off managing shrublands in those particular areas. And, um, you know, and, and then really removing invasive plants, probably one of the more important topics to deal with yeah. because your food of plenty, right. Can't just be your localized crops and, right. uh, your winter severity is a lot easier than ours. And then mm-hmm. I remember a couple of years ago, you guys had this like cold spell and deer were dying and it's like, <laughs> Come to New York. We'll, we'll, I'll show you some of that deer. And, yeah. uh, but, but, and not to minimize that, but that's the thing that keeps your populations. Cause think about this. There's a lot of out of states, a lot of out of staters. They're not shooting those. Your populations are, you know, through the roof. Your ratios are off. And you just think about those kind of detrimental things. So I don't think you got it easy. I think, yeah, it's great to have a target rich environment. But then, you know, think about, what really would be kind of the optimal goal you brought up that bear hunt and in my eyes is like well that seemed like needle on a haystack well there's a needle in a haystack example in your scenario and maybe that is fixing the deer population in a small scale area where you guys are having kind of ultimate or optimal scenarios to create these kind of just 
equilibrium kind of homeostasis kind of scenarios for yeah. deer populations and the related habitat. Uh, I can build habitat till the till the sky falls at this point because yeah. I don't have deer populations to to worry about. Um, yeah, that is, there's that a benefit is, to my my scenario. Yeah, that's a very fair point, and and uh, yeah, you're right. And you know, honestly, it was one of oh, I think it was on Wired to Hunt back when I was first starting to to whitetail hunt. <clears throat> I was in my mid twenties, and um, I had heard somebody make that point in a similar way that you just did with as far as the in, ingress egress side of it you know and at that point i was just so focused on where should i be hunting and like when i heard somebody say it doesn't you could be going to the world's best spot to hunt but if you don't have the right access in and out it really does not matter because you're going to just blow everything out of there and uh that is that is exactly true and and i think that's probably as far as what hurts people here in the midwest you know guys who struggle to find success here um, is that, that's, that's going to be very high on the list. They don't know how to effectively access where they're going. And and then from there too, you know, uh, part of the, the tree stand game is picking the right tree and they don't do that well. And, uh, and a lot of those variables you mentioned, like with thermal changes and, and, uh, you know, moisture levels, what, what's the, what's the barometric pressure? What's the, you know, all those variables, what's, where's their scent stream going even throughout the hunt? Not just, you know, what's the wind direction that day, but what's, what's, what's the air movement like inside the timber, all of that yeah. stuff. They, they, I they, feel bad, they I feel bad saying this, but one of the discriminators of your area is the quality soil is so great comparatively. That doesn't mean mm -hmm. every area has great soil, but comparatively is so good. That your opportunity in your growing season, minus the drought periods that you have, but there's a way to fix drought on the landscape, and mm -hmm. that's something we we talk about on my podcast. Yeah. Beyond that, um, the thing I would focus in on is your quality of soil and the opportunity to build excellent habitat and food is is through the roof, and that is a discriminator from the properties in the Midwest. So if you start with the soil, and you look at the related plant life, and you figure out what deer like and don't like. And you remove the things they don't like or they don't prefer and, and put value in it. You know, mm -hmm. some things, you know, deer prefer uh, at certain times rather than others. And you have to have that understanding of seasonality of plants. But I think that's that's a discriminator that you all have working for you in some of these big buck states is the quality soil truly dictates the, the, the quality of plants, the density, the nutrient density of those plants and the re related health of your deer. You've got other issues like overpopulation, you know, these kind of disease yeah. dependency issues, C CWD is one of those. Yep. So that that's, you know, obviously in, in, intense. I don't deal with those issues, right? Uh, in, in my areas, we have some drought conditions, so you'll get a spot of blue tongue. And But, you know, that's probably healthy for the population. I look at it as, as that that is kind of a benefit, although people would probably want to shoot me saying that. I just see, I see some things, I see diseases providing an opportunity to suss out the populations that I think people, these hunters, they, they just look at deer populations as how do I get more and more and more and more and more in the, in the world is, is not the best thing. Right. And so yeah. I think we kind of lose touch on that topic. I, I guess where I would, what, what I would say there is with EHD, I can, I can uh, agree with that. That's almost a nature a natural culling 
Um, with yeah. with CWD, uh, again, you know, I'll, I'll reference Doug Dern here. He says, if you don't have it, you don't want it. And I think just there's a permanence there. You know, those prions, yeah. they stay viable for so long. They become, they, they it's, it's a more insidious disease that just uh, sits in your herd and, you know, can take years to kill a deer. And even though it's been infected, you know, for its almost its whole life, that kind of thing. And, but yeah, definitely with the EHD, I think it's almost a, um, EHD is almost a, uh, I guess a rebuke, <laughs> you know, nature's rebuke to us for not managing herds properly. And, um, actually after we, uh, are done, uh, John and I are done recording this, uh, this part of the, the episode, well, this episode, we're going to do a separate pick and bones here. We're going to talk a little bit about conservation and, and hunt property management and how to have the right perspective there. So we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more, but I agree. I think, uh, in the case of EHD and there's other diseases too that affect deer, of course. Um, you know, a weird one, I don't know if you remember this, uh, they were talking about deer, uh, having tuberculosis. Uh, mm-hmm. this is like maybe five, six years ago. And you started seeing that quite a bit in the news, but, but yeah, any kind of disease, you know, that, that can plague them is, is sometimes, you know, that's nature's way of making sure there's not too many when we should be doing our part with doe management or, or uh, antlerless management at least. So, yep. yeah, yeah, all uh, all good points. Well, you know, another thing I want to talk about here, uh, John, that you have a lot of expertise with, and you've already talked about it a little bit, is the small property uh, management. You know, there's I've had a guy on this podcast before, Amos Medford of uh, the Wannabe Hunting Podcast. Um, he uh, killed his first deer. He's a first-gen hunter. He killed his first deer on his wife's grandparents' six-acre piece down in Florida. <laughs> and uh, he shot, I think he shot a buck. Yeah, I think it was, I think his first deer might have been a buck if I remember right. And he got it on this little six-acre piece. And uh, that was so impressive to me to be able to, to be able to figure that out, you know, on such, you know, such tight quarters like that. Uh, but you know, people that are wanting to become landowners, maybe they've, you know, usually this is more the case in the Midwest. So Iowa, I believe, is the third, has the third lowest uh, number of public acres um, in the country. So uh, right there with us is Nebraska. And then uh, I can't remember who the, the third one is, probably, probably like Rhode Island or something like that, or Delaware, you know, someone tiny. But um the people in here in this part of the country, they get fed up with public land because of the competition and, you know, feeling like they're stacked on top of each other, which is understandable. And so they're like, you know what? I want to control my own destiny, or maybe they're allowed to hunt somewhere, but the property has some major issues where there's like no food. You know, maybe the farmer does like, he's a full tillage farmer and he, you know, rips up the ground after he harvests in October, November, there's just not a scrap of food left on the place or there's no good thermal cover for later in the season, whatever the, whatever the reasoning is, they want to buy their own piece. And so, uh, if you, if someone doesn't come for money, a small property is your option. Um, in your mind, what would be a small property? Like what would totally disqualify something for you on a small property? Is it like a minimum acreage? 
Is it, hey, if your neighbors are this, no way. If it's got, you know, some kind of other problem, what, what would you, what would you tell someone? Don't even think about it. I mean, if you're going to buy a small parcel and anybody who's has a small parcel, you're going to be susceptible to anything that happens in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Ideally, you have people that are like-minded and that's, that's not normally the case or always the case. It's tough because most of the clients that I have, they're in these strategic efforts trying to be very tactical and, you know, they try to reap what they sow and the reality of it is others may benefit. So, you know, I think as large as you can afford more property is always better. Mm-hmm. That's generally the rule. Uh, beyond that, it's, you know, what does that property actually offer in comparison? People are like, well, you know, what does that actually mean? Well, look at your ideal scenario and habitat types that you think deer prefer based on the style and tactics, uh, hunting tactics that you have. For example, if you're a long range shooter and you like to shoot like long distances, think about having areas that are uh, vastly available to that, where you could have a tower stand and, you know, grossly cut lanes um, in 200 to 300 yard increments. So the habitat may dictate kind of the quality of hunting in that scenario. The other piece of it is attractivity. And so we talked earlier about good soils. So I'll take mm-hmm. a 20 acre property with better soils than a 40 acre property, just because I know, you know, there's a likelihood that I can do better with that better soiled mm, property. That's a good point. Right. The, uh, the other thing to consider at least the way I look at it is, you know, if you're, I own uh, just 4.75 acres here, what, what I live on and my property is 46 acres mm-hmm. down the road proximity. So I think proximity a lot of time dictates, you know, really kind of what, what is most ideal. I've got two kids, right? So I'm back and forth. I'm traveling all the time. You know, I, I finished up work Friday. Okay. I finished up a job. And then Friday night, I decided to go Friday night around six o'clock. I'm like, I got an hour. I'm going to go clear cut this hillside. Mm-hmm. And I got into it. I was so, so tired. And I had no business cutting trees at that time of night, but it's it's when I had time available to me. Yeah. So that convenience of property is a mile from my house. I can drive my tractor down, my ATV, whatever. It's thinking more of that distancing. That may dictate you know the, the types of properties that you have access to. If you can live on your property... That would be a no-brainer. I yeah. would rather have a property I could live on and, and and watch over and deal with the consequences of poor neighbors just because I'm just more present. Yeah. And so those are all factors that I would say kind of weigh into my decision on what would be an ideal property. But I have the ideal property, and someday, you know, I guess we could talk about, you know, what to buy and why. I have done podcasts with a, another person on my, on my my channel to say, Hey, this is, this is how I look at property. And it'll be very different than what maybe the Jake's podcast talks about. And because, you know, I'm in it every day, I'm cutting timber. I'm, I can tell you what doesn't, doesn't work. And you know, what's the quickest, most efficient way to get to the game of success. And, and that's, you know, that's why, you know, I've got a different maybe take on things because I know how to get from A to Z and getting to Z boy, there's a finesse and, and, uh, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't come with soft gloves and yeah. you've really got to take that hammer and hell, uh, hammer and nail approach to most of these things. And it doesn't come with planting ascanthus grass or whatever plant you think you're going to do. And I, I don't put a huge emphasis on food plots. I don't do it with my clients. Mm. And, uh, there's a reason why, and my approach is much different because 
I want to basically put as much effort in every aspect of my property and not just be so concentrated on one attribute like food plots. And, uh, you know, that's to, to think about when you're buying a piece of property. Yeah. Yeah. All excellent advice there. And, and, uh, you know, uh, listen to it. I think a lot of times when we hear stuff like this that we know, you know, it's almost kind of like exercise and diet, right? We know what's good for us, but we want to shortcut it all the time because we, you know, we, we know what's good for us and we 80% want what's good for us. 20% we want, we want the easy way. And, uh, I think when people do that, it just lowers the ceiling on their property, right? When people try and shortcut those, those aspects. Would you agree with yeah, that, John? Absolutely. Yeah, I do. It? I agree with it a hundred percent. And I think that, you know, people speak about one particular word and it's diversity. It's diversity in cover. It's diversity in vegetation types. It's diversity in soil. When they say diversity, they're not specific enough. It's mm. diversity in water. Like my property mm. has water all throughout it. Do you know how much of a resource that is across the landscape? I can literally yeah. take an area that deer don't ingest a certain type of species and water it, add moisture to it, and they eat it. Yeah. I mean, there's a science side of this that I think people start to lose touch with is, yeah. boy, if I just moisten the ground a little bit more, you know, are they going to eat this particular plant uh, where they normally wouldn't? And I can tell you that's there. The answer to that is yes. And that's a lot more plants yeah. than you, you would think. So use your resources point. to your advantage. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Now, when somebody does max out, when they sense they've maxed out their prep, their property, like there's, they've, mm-hmm. and, you know, and of course there's an infinite number of, of minute details that if somebody really did have the science background, you know, almost, I would think almost the most valuable uh, scientific background a land manager could have would be most people probably think like ecologist or botanist or something like that. But I would almost say geologist um, because if you can understand the, the, the geology of where you're at, you can connect the dots uh, because when this land was untouched, the geology is really what dictated the vegetation, the wildlife on it, the climate, you know, everything about it was dictated by that. And so if you can have that understanding, so the point being here, very few people are geologists, so they can't get down to that minutia. If somebody senses like, yeah, you know, I've, you know, maybe for the last five years, I've killed a mature, the mature buck that I knew was on my property. Um, uh, you know, I want to, I want to climb to something bigger, that kind of thing. Like, is that time is it just time to sell at that point probably and try and you know maybe relocate a little bit get yourself into a new neighborhood or or uh i mean what's your advice like how what what kind of symptoms i guess are are at play if you if a property is quote unquote maxed out and then what do you do yeah so here here's a little strategy for people um everybody wants the next card, right? And Mm -hmm. the game that we're talking about here is trying to find, it's a chess game. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the best advice I could give anybody, this is buying property. So my property is the prime example of this. It's the hardest property I've ever hunted in my life. Mm -hmm. I bought the hardest 
I bought it for convenience because it's close to my house, but I also bought the hardest property in my life. But the benefit to that property, it's, not a, it's got a lot of glacial till, um, mm-hmm. but it gives me pockets of really high quality soil. I've got a ton of diversity of plants because the glacial till, high mineral content, you brought up geology. Those mm-hmm. are the things, you know, these Cornell botanists want to come on my property. We're going to meet up this week. Oh, a couple botanists awesome. are coming up from Cornell because they know what I'm doing from the deer side of things. They've heard about me. They also know that my property is in this very um, focused area where there's just a lot of diversity. And yeah. so I have a two properties in my whole area within, you know, hundred square miles. They only have these type of soils and blah, blah, blah. So I knew that when I bought my property. Mm-hmm. So to the guy that's the killer that's been successful year in and year out, one thing I would say is you're never perfect. And mm. one of the measures of success is efficiency in hunting. And that 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 aptitude, that knowledge where you're killing within hours and being able to predict precisely, and, and nothing's this, you know, nothing is this consistent, but predict precisely a technique and methodology to kill that deer within minutes or hours, right? I had a deer one time, I said, he's four minutes late. He better, <laughs> he better move. I got to go to a birthday party, you know? And so, you know, you could get that level of specificity. So then the next piece of it, if you're that good, right? Now you're you're going to not not only, you know, the geology, uh, moisturing the landscape, thinking about how to amplify every inch. So we're going from yards to feet to inches. And so, Nobody is that good. I'm 46 acres. I'm working 25 days a year on my property, and I'm not even close. I'm not even close, and I have this. I have the knowledge. I think I have the knowledge, and yeah. I'm learning more. I had somebody educate me something. You know, they were talking about some you know, this fungal strategy, this new strategy, and, mm. and how to you know amplify interest in certain areas. I said yeah. that's great. And I said I want to use it for this, that, and the other thing. I mean, I use compost teas, foliar sprays. Like if you saw like my routine, you'd be like. And because I'm trying to amplify down to the foot. So yeah. there's no way that any of these people that think they've got it figured out actually do. And really the measure is simply this. Good you get point. to the end of the season, these deer are fat, dumb, and happy. And you can't do it based on the scale and size of property if you're a small landowner. But you have leftover food, and it's in the capacity of around 30%. So 30% mm-hmm. woody material in some of these northern latitudes, you have 30% remaining food. Um, so when I design a hunting property, this is just for the tactics for some of your listenership is like, how much percentage do I want on the landscape of woody material? And so mm-hmm. if it's 40% to create 40% on an annual basis, I mean, you have to cut 80% of the woodlot yeah. I mean, just to get that volume. Now you got to cut it in interval in, in intervals and it can't be all cut at once, but to, to maintain that 30 to 40% of woody material on your property it is so difficult. It's it's slope aspect, you know, quality of vegetation. It's all that dependent. It's 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 almost impractical to create that. It's it's impossible. Yeah. It's it's almost impossible. And I'm asking for people to do the impossible. And I, I guarantee no one's gotten that far. And right. again, the people in the Midwest, a little different story. Yeah, they may not have that same woody material component because they have you got trash crop fields. You have extra yeah. residual. I mean, you're in a different scenario. Um, some of these areas that are desolate, right, don't have the winter severity index like Kansas, but you still have the quality soils. You do have the crop residue still available, the, the animals. So there's differences in each one of these areas that I think everyone needs to consider. And um, I think you need to be as specific as you can. I guarantee that nobody meets that scenario 100% of the time. They can be very successful hunters. 
but they're lacking in other areas, and there's no question. Yeah, I like that attitude because it's almost uh, it's another way to to deal with the the perceived problem of having maxed it out. Is okay. Where can I learn to to uh, extend that max? <laughs> you know, how can I bring in? How can I bring in uh, uh, and be more attractive to an older age class of deer? And uh, what and a lot of that, I, I imagine too. Uh, goes beyond just property management goes to the behavior of the hunter you know he's got to switch things up too and change the way he hunts it and and totally maybe flip it on its head and uh maybe even focus on a whole different month you know yeah Uh, yeah that's a great tactic changing your month changing your routine you know and i think learning more about specific deer and how they use the landscape and every deer is so individualistic mm -hmm. their process approach how they do stuff and their learned behaviors really kind of dictate that you know, there's social dynamics. There's so many features of, you know, kind of these these deer that we don't necessarily, or characteristics, we don't fully appreciate or understand. It's assessing kind of the finer elements of things. Jake Ellinger is on my podcast, and we talk a lot mm-hmm. about, he's going to talk this, probably this winter, about kind of the social behavior of deer, what he's observed, okay, yeah. how these groups, you know, kind of interact. And, and this is anecdotal, right? But the fact is simply this, science is not going to prove out to some degree, how deer socially like interoperate with, with kind mm-hmm. of their groups, you know, each deer has, it's kind of like, you know, they're happy, mad or sad. I mean, you know, yeah. but beyond that they have feelings and we've got to think about some of these deer kind of in these environments. And we, we, uh, we humanize things uh, a little too often, but you almost have to, to understand the environments and, and portray what's actually really happening in the landscape. So there'll be more yeah, point. Uh, on those topics to come between I think Jake and I going forward. Yeah, uh, that's a great point to kind of wrap this one up here. Uh, John has a just a fantastic uh, a podcast and uh, one that I listen to all the time while I'm working, which is fun because, you know, I'm, uh, I remember one recently I was tuned into a couple of weeks ago. You were talking native plants with a guy while I was literally uh, working out in a wild Bergamot field. And, uh, it's cool. like, yeah, keep it up. You know, you guys are you're saying good stuff here. Um, so can you tell everybody the name of the podcast when it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a weekly show, right. And what days, uh, it's usually on and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So my, my business is whitetail landscapes and this podcast is whitetail landscapes. I produce it and it's called maximize your hunt. Mm-hmm. And the idea is behind the maximize your hunt is, we know you can't maximize your properties. We know you can't maximize everything. It gives you an opportunity to maximize your experience. And that's the premise behind the podcast. And what I've done was, you know, my job is to go help people go from that CD property to an A property. And we're getting very specific, breaking down perfect examples. You know, I'm not a naturalist in in the world of ecology. I think there's opportunities to have natural non-natural plants and thinking a little bit about native non-native plants on the landscape just just as an example um it's thinking different and that methodology of thinking different is what brings this group of together so what i did is i picked what i thought were some of the best resources or management habitat managers in the country and i've mentioned some of them already one i want to mention is todd shippy he's fantastic Mm -hmm. that guy knows more than uh, most people on their best days. And he's just, <laughs> he's just a wealth of knowledge. And here's the beauty. These guys, we have all personal relationships. Perry Batten from Drury's on there. 
you know, mm-hmm. got Jake Ellinger, I mentioned him, Jimmy, Jim Ward, Rocky Burris. I mean, there's, there's uh Mark Haslam. There's just a whole Steve Shirk is my hunting tactics guy. Yeah. It's yeah. basically, I took the, I felt like I took the, a great group of guys that have a ton of experience that are constantly dealing with the issues and problem solving. And mm-hmm. you put that collective together and they all have one goal or we all have the same goal. It's education. Yeah. I just added Eric Lance to the podcast. I would like to add a couple more people, but you know, I'm taking it in increments and I want to share yeah. the love. I've got two foresters on there as well. Uh, Tim Russell is a good buddy of mine. We've done a couple jobs together and, um, you know, Kenny Kane's on there out of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So it just, again, it's a well-mixed bit and you're learning from these people. And I think that's huge because it gives the people collective because there's no way get one guy from Whitetail Landscapes knows everything. So yeah, yeah. it's this whole conglomerate. And it, it, it's been a great, it's been great. It's given me uh, great resources to work with. I, I mean, I'm on a job and I got a question, I'll call one of them and vice versa. It's all you know, and these guys that I've looked up to have called and asked me questions. And I'm like, yeah, oh, that's cool. Just that's cool. Do I even know how to respond? You know, because yeah. I'm valuable. I don't know everything. And that, and that's been the beauty. We don't know everything, but we know what we do know and we know what doesn't work. And and I think that's that. those are the tactics that, that kind of apply. Jim Ward and I have argued a, quite a bit about things that are sensible or not. And that's not, a, I guess, a anything negative about a relationship we're challenging each other he's challenged me to think differently and i just challenge him on something back and so it's about pushing the limits and i think that's mm-hmm. that's the premise behind it so long-winded it comes out tuesday it's on sportsman's empire we are the hat we are the i'm the only habitat management group there was a group previous to that i'm i'm the one that that has that slot at this point and so we got a pretty big following it's it's it is the largest hunting habitat podcast, I think, right now. Um, and it's been that way for That's the awesome. past six months. Um, and I, I think awesome. it'll continue to grow and I hope people listen to it. And I think I think that they build relationships through that podcast with you and they they feel your life. I talk about my kids, I talk about some personal things. I want people to be able to relate to me because I am the average guy, I have average means. I just happen to be intensely involved in the outdoor world and that that makes me a little bit more resourceful in some capacity yeah very well said and uh that's what people like too they like they like uh having someone that's relatable and and hearing that diverse content which you have for sure so definitely tune in to maximize your hunt um i do uh, one of my favorite episodes was a uh, prescribed fire episode that i listened to with you guys just uh that was back this spring and uh it's just an excellent excellent episode there learned a lot from it um and uh that's that's uh you know shows you the kind of resource that it is so you'll learn something because that is their goal so definitely tune into that well thank you so much john for joining me on this episode thank you to the listeners for tuning in remember this podcast is presented by spartan forge spartan forge wants to change your hunt Uh, just like John does, and they want to uh, make it a better experience for you, and they are science-based like John is. They uh, take all that radio collar data, break it down, run it through their uh, AI processor, assign it to you know your conditions and your loc in your locale uh right right where your gps location is at and it'll tell you what you can expect for deer movement 
And uh, that helps you decide. I think a lot of times people just think that they should only hunt on full range days um, because they feel like deer will be running everywhere. But you know what? Sometimes, like when I uh, uh, was hunting a specific buck last year, I was really mostly interested in the core area days because I wanted to kill him near where he was uh, bedding. And uh, you can get that kind of information from that as well. Of course, they have the journaling features, the mapping features. Um, and, uh, uh, they're also coming out with some new layers that are really fantastic. The LIDAR layer that can help you if you're going to a new area and you want to just kind of see where some deer travel areas are and just get a better, more, much more thorough understanding of the topography of the area that you're going to hunt. Spartan Forge will help you out with that. So definitely check them out. You can download the app, the mapping side of it for free, get all that landowner data and everything. But then if you want to take it up a level to the deer behavior prediction and uh, some of the other features, you're going to need to subscribe. You can either do that monthly for the time of year you want it, or you can do the full year subscription, which is what I do, what Caleb does, what Alex does. Um, that's what, that's what, uh, is most useful to us because we're thinking about this stuff all year round. So definitely check out Spartan Forge. You can find a link in the show notes or in the bio on my Instagram profile. So you can go there and, and find it there. And then also remember Alex Gruen of East to West Hunts. If you have a dream hunt that you want planned, like my bear hunt last spring, or uh, some hunts that I'm, in, I'm working on right now with Alex for next year, uh, you need to talk to Alex. Go to eastwesthunts.com. Alex is can give you a complete uh, uh, top-to-bottom hunt plan. He'll apply for your points. He'll uh, help you buy the right tags. Um, he'll, uh, uh, he'll talk to guides for you if you want to hunt with a guide. He'll help you even with your hotel reservations and booking flights. If you're going to be up in Alaska, you need you know those little island-hopping bush plane flights and all that. Alex takes care of all of it for you. He can even help you find the taxidermist that you need to drop your animal off or a, or a meat shipping uh, uh, business if you're you know hunting up in Canada or something like that. Alex can take care of all of it for you. Go to easttowesthunts.com. Tell him I sent you there by using a promo code, FIRSTGEN10, and you'll save 10% off of that. And so uh, you, get, you can save a little bit of money there. And then just yesterday, picked up a brand-new partner, um, and that is Old Barn Taxidermy right here in Iowa. Um, Sam is one of the top taxidermists in the business, period. It's, it's just the way, it's just who he is. He, he's an artist. And uh, got to enjoy talking with him for an hour and a half yesterday. My dad and I went there to pick up my buck from 2022 and uh, just thoroughly enjoyed talking with Sam and Colton. They will take care of you. We're going to have them on the podcast here soon. We're going to go down there and record with them. Um, but they are a new uh, sponsor of this show as well. So uh, make sure if you have a mount that you want done, maybe maybe you just want a skull done, maybe you uh, want to do a shoulder mount, maybe you want to do a full body mount, whatever it is, tell them that you heard about Old Barn on this podcast, on the First Gen Hunter podcast. When you show up there, when you call them, whatever, say, hey, I heard about you on the First Gen Hunter podcast. And uh, uh, let them know that that I sent you there, and they will take care of you. They will give you world-class work that's done. Everyone's seen Bad Taxidermy. And once, you, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And if that's your taxidermy, that's not a good place to be. So get it done the right way. They're very affordable. Um, uh, I'll tell you how much it is. For a shoulder mount here in Iowa, 
it's kind of different. They have a couple different locations around the country, but in Iowa, it's six ninety five. I think the national average right now for a deer shoulder mount is around nine hundred dollars. That shows you how affordable they are for world class work. Um, Sam's decorated, uh, competing taxidermist. So uh, go check out Old Barn Taxidermy. Follow him on Instagram. And again, tell him that I sent you there. Well, thank you again, John, for coming on the podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening in. Please leave a five-star review. That's how uh, we podcasters. Leave one for John, too, after you listen to Maximize Your Hunt. That's how we gain traction. That's how we get featured on uh, Spotify and on iTunes so that more people can come to us and learn and become hopefully better hunters and a better part of the hunting community. But most importantly, until next time, take care and take someone hunting.